0: Welcome to CTSNet To Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net To Go. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to this series of interviews with the giants of cardiothoracic surgery. My name's Joel Dunning and I'm delighted to be here with Professor Tom D'Amico here in the beautiful Cambridge uh, VATS Symposium Uh, and what a fantastic location it is uh, for a conference. Uh, Professor D'Amico, you need very little introduction but you are a Professor of Thoracic Surgery uh, at Duke University in Durham in the USA and you've talked to a vast number of people uh, over the years and you were one of the very first uh, people in VATS lobectomy. So there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about. About. but first, perhaps by by way of introduction, how did you start vatslobectomy uh, in your initial experience? Well, we started with the intent of making the operation that we
2: were using less and less invasive. And when I finished training, I would not have, would not have thought that a vatslobectomy was really going to be successful back in 1996. Started using a small anterior incision to do the operation open, learned to put a scope in to make the visualization better and really the operation just grew from there. So there never was a third port. We started with a small anterior incision and a camera to improve visualization rather than trying to look into a small hole then made the incision smaller and smaller until we settled that four, four and a half centimeters would be enough and then uh, just experimented where with where the two incisions would have to be to make essentially every operation successful without a third incision. In my early experience with VATS doing wedge resections or biopsies, we always used three incisions. That's how we were taught. It's a triangulation approach, which, of course, in retrospect, makes no sense. Um, uh, but I hated the posterior incision anyway because it caused the most pain. So I was happy not to use it and
1: develop a two-port incision, which is what we use on most of our our patients now. And now you've sort of developed that two port incision and and you may be calling it the sort of modified uniportal incision, that that second port goes in the same space, is that right? Yes, so we've moved uh, the camera incision more anterior
2: and instead of being in the seventh or eighth space, we just put it uh, in the fifth space, tunneled just a little bit. It's the the incision in which a 20 or 24 French chest tube will go Uh, So it's easily usable for that and in my experience and in training residents, it it is an easier setup to have an assistant to have a proctor and have a trainee do a procedure with a dedicated port incision for three, four, five instruments if you want
1: but the camera's separate to be managed by someone else. So one of the key advantages is, is training and, and helping your juniors to do it. Would you say that's one of the real advantages of your setup? Yes. Each, our, Joel, our, our technique has modified over time. I'm certainly not doing the
2: same operation I did in 1999 when I started. And each modification really was based on, is this an easier, better, more efficient way to do the operation? And is it trainable? You know, you watch some procedures and they're beautiful. Um, uh, and certain operations are extraordinary but it doesn't mean you can teach residents, trainees, fellows, registrars that technique and so each time I've made fundamental changes usually
1: minor it's based on efficiency of the operation and the ability to teach it to other people and would you say that's the absolute key of what makes a great lobectomy? it's got to be teachable and reproducible and it's got to do exactly what open surgeons would do Exactly, and I think that's why there are many
2: people that have come to Duke not doing the operation and either spent just a couple of days or come to a course or spend a few months and leave
1: Duke knowing how to do the operation because it's fundamental, fundamentally reproducible. Would that be the way if anybody was watching this video and they had a three-port or four-port approach to literally come to yourself or watch the videos? How, how would someone learn your S- technique? Certainly,
2: I would recommend come to one of our courses. We give courses in North America, in Asia, I've given courses in Europe, or come to Duke and watch us. Um, we have a trainer that allows you to uh, experiment with where you would put your incisions. And uh, I think that Um, fewer incisions is probably better so if you're using a four port technique with one of the incisions
1: posteriorly I think it's worthwhile looking into losing that at least that fourth posterior incision. And with those small number of incisions you've got how do you manage pain? Do you need extra pleural catheters or obviously I imagine you don't use epidurals anymore? How do you manage pain?
2: So that's that's a good question. We uh, prospectively look at each patient and decide are they going to be the median or less in terms of discharge, or the median or just above the median and greater in terms of discharge? So if I'm doing a VATS bilobectomy on an 83-year-old, they're not going home on day three probably, and they might benefit more from having an epidural than if I operate on a 42-year-old person with, you know, a two-centimeter ground glass opacity. They're going home on day two, so an epidural would impede the progress. Of a patient going home on day two, but it would probably get a patient uh, more functional in terms of respiratory mechanics uh, if it's a more ex- extended procedure or if they're frail, elderly, poor pulmonary function. So we use epidurals in patients we think are going to stay four days, and not and use liberal use of markane, intercostal blocks, etc., on the younger patients or patients that are
1: predicted to go home at the median, which is three days or earlier. That's a very interesting approach, the sort of tailored approach to patient, uh, to, to selecting what you do in the operation. So that's certainly not something we hear all the time, is it tailoring to the patient? No, and, and the other aspect is I want the anesthesia
2: team to do enough epidural so that when I need it, when I do a VATS hybrid chest wall resection, I, you need epidural for that. I mean, the patients are going to benefit from that. So, we want a unit that is used to epidurals, teams that follow epidurals carefully, wisely, don't give them extra fluid just because their blood pressure is a little low on day one. Um, so, the team stays facile with epidurals. It's the benefit of the patients that get
1: it. And then it's the true benefit of the patients that absolutely needed the vats, chest wall resections, et cetera. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about extended resections. I'm, I'm what I might call a baby vats re- surgeon. I've never done a chest wall resection. I've watched one of your fabulous videos on the interview on, on the internet recently a total lung sparing left main bronchus resection. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I mean, maybe talk us through that operation, how that came about, and uh, I mean, is that a reproducible procedure? Sure. No, it was an
2: interesting case, and that was the first, that was the index case, and we've done two since. It's rare because the tumor has to be in just the right location so that you get negative margins and still be able to reconstruct main bronchus to main bronchus. They've all been on the left because the bronchus is larger. I'm about to do one in the middle lobe that probably will end up being a middle lobe sleeve rather than a a true uh, bronchial sleeve resection. But it started with uh, our philosophy, really, in the early 2000s, that just start every case as a VATS. Even if you don't think you're going to be able to finish a case thoracoscopically, you don't lose any time. If you look at the chapters that have been written about VATS lobectomy over time, they contradict each other uh, uh, in a temporal uh, arrangement. So the early chapters, adhesions are a, a contraindication, preoperative therapy is a contraindication, Visible endobronchial tumor is a contraindication. It goes on and on. And then now if you read the chapters or papers or talk to people, almost nothing really is a true contraindication. In our unit, that started because we would just put a scope in, start every case thoracoscopically. If you hit a point in the operation that you couldn't proceed anymore or realize you couldn't do the same operation thoracoscopically that you would do open, then you confer. And that's how we started doing sleeves. We'd get to the point where it would start to go together, and if, if the anastomosis was facile, we would finish it. If it wasn't, we would open. Same for pneumonectomy, same for some of the extended resections. So this particular patient uh, with, I think it was mucoepidermoid carcinoma, the, the, the tumor was right in the, the correct location. We started posteriorly. We know how to get around the bronchus. We know how to cut a bronchus. And then, you know, you have to be creative about how you put it back together through a two-centimeter anterior
1: incision, and it it was fine. It's absolutely fantastic, a great video. And chest wall resection, I suppose it's the same thing. Is it put a scope in, see how far you can get? How how do you actually cut the the ribs from inside? We've done it a a couple of ways, depending on whether it's an apical
2: tumour, superior sulcus, or something similar. Uh, We use a counter-incision posterior to the scapula. If it's more anterior, you can get conventional rib cutters in and do the entire operation thoracoscopically through one anterior incision, especially if it's truly anterior, you make the incision over the ribs, cut the ribs, drop it in, and then do the lobectomy. That's relatively rare. Uh, we haven't used the technique of, of using a burr or drill uh, to get to the top of the apex without making a counter incision. So. All of the superior sulcus tumors, or ribs two, three, and four, I've done with just a small seven or eight centimeter counter incision parallel to the scapula, cut down on the ribs, divide the ribs with a standard rib cutter,
1: disarticulate the ribs posteriorly, drop the chest wall back into the chest, and then take it out. Wow, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> That's great. I just love to see that. And so I suppose let's talk about a few other things. The, the difficult thing I always struggle with is, is N2 disease. I mean, what's your philosophy of, of N2 disease at Duke? Well, this, again,
2: started from um, a philosophy of starting all the cases minimally, invasively. Um, there was a cancer and leukemia group B trial, uh, CLGB, uh, uh, for VATS restaging, And the goal was to take patients that needed induction therapy that were N2 and determine the efficacy of restaging with VATS. What percentage of patients could be effectively restaged defined as getting three lymph node stations that were negative, uh, including the one that was positive pre-op, and doing what a redo mediastinoscopy would have done. And we learned by doing that, you were doing a VATS mediastinal lymph node dissection. That's really what you were doing and handing them to the radiolo- uh, to the pathologist, and then you would decide to go on and do the lobectomy or not. Well, once you've done the MLND, the vessels are there. You can say, well, why should I open now? You know, this contraindication that had always prohibited us from doing this operation was now gone, uh, just simply because we'd done the lymph nodes. But it also tells you when you do the lymph nodes, this isn't a case I want to do minimally invasive. It's a case that we'll do open. Our policy is that if... If patients aren't significantly downstage with induction chemotherapy, in other words, the frozen section is persistently, grossly positive. We don't proceed with that operation, but uh, patients, I think, uh, tolerate the VAT's lymphadenectomy fine even if they're not resectable. They can start radiation therapy within a week of that surgery, and so we still the VAT still uh, provides progress
1: uh, to their ultimate therapy. Right. So, so a positive N2, downstage them, go back in at the end and, and take out their N2 nodes. If they're negative, you'd carry on. If there's a positive N2, stop there.
2: Yes, That's right.
1: but I would qualify negative and
2: positive as relative, not absolute, not black and white, not on and off. So if someone has considerable involvement of a single station, and then on battery staging, the pathologist says, few cancer cells present. If the patient is operable with a lobectomy, I would still probably proceed. That, that demonstrates enough downstaging. And we don't use radiation therapy preoperatively. So if, if there is significant downstaging, even if it's not 100% downstaging, I still will proceed with a lobectomy. If it looks like it would be a pneumonectomy, if it's multiple stage disease, if it's an 80-plus-year-old patient, it would probably
1: be less likely that I would proceed. Yeah, that sounds very very sensible. And just, just finally, how, how is... Uh, have you, do you have a program of, of, of routine CT surveillance of, of people uh, to, to try a sort of uh, a surveillance program? So is that, is that prevalent at Duke? It, it is. We have a, is a separate screening program.
2: We're one of the few centers that started as soon as the New England Journal trial was completed, even before the publication of starting a screening program. Um, and there are several in the United States. It, it, you know, it hasn't, hasn't taken hold in Europe yet. I think they're still waiting for the Nelson trial, but um, our surveillance is, again, tailored to the patient. If they get preoperative or postoperative chemotherapy, CT scans uh, every three months for two years, and then every six or 12 months. If they're early stage patients, every six months for one or two years, and then annually. If their annual CT scan after three or four years, is negative, we'll switch to low-dose um, and proceed with low-dose indefinitely, and
1: then go to 18 months and 24 months if they're 5, 8, 10 years out. Great. That well, sounds like a fabulous program in Duke. I know you've done thousands of vats and taught so many people around the world. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure to see all your videos and, and listen to your multiple talks, and I hope I listen to many more over the years, so for myself, you. Joel Dunning, and everyone at CTSNet, I'd just like to say thank you very much. Thank you, Joel. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to ctsnet To go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNetVideo by following at ctsnet.org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net To Go. Have a great day.